This podcast is supported by Cisco, the bridge to possible. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The coronavirus pandemic upended education and generated concern about millions of students falling behind, especially those of color and in high poverty communities. In this edition of our Continuing Opportunity in Crisis series, Linda Darling-Hammond and Darion Pollard, two experts in education, join Washington Post Live to examine the state of education, how to create a more equitable path forward, and ways to equip students for skills needed in a rapidly changing world. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter at The Washington Post. And today we are talking about educational equity in the United States. My first guest is Linda Darling-Hammond. She's the founding president of the Learning Policy Institute. Welcome, Linda. Great to see you. First, I want to uh, start with a conversation about uh, COVID-19 and equity. Uh, emerging evidence shows that disruptions to learning during the pandemic negatively impacted academic growth and widened pre-existing disparities. How do K through 12 schools make up for that learning loss? Well, I think there's a number of things that we can do. And because of the American Rescue Plan Act funding that's coming in, we're going to be positioned to do more of the things that we should be doing all along. I want to just start by saying that GAP was there before the pandemic. Uh, we were alerted to it uh, in part by the huge digital divide that occurred uh, that we saw. Uh, a third of kids did not have computers and hotspots at home to even engage in digital learning. Uh, larger classes uh, in a lot of communities. The impact of the pandemic, which was uh, traumatic uh, in very intense ways in communities of color and in low-income communities. All of those things, of course, were um, activated and contributing to this learning uh, gap that is growing. What we need to do, of course, is put in the resources, uh, not only for uh, intensive instruction. We've learned a lot about how, for example, intensive tutoring can make a difference very rapidly in closing achievement gaps and some states, California and many others are putting those kinds of tools in place, but also counseling and social and emotional supports because we learn when we are able to be uh, positively engaged, when our brains are free of uh, stigma, trauma uh, and anxieties uh, that so many kids are carrying with them back to school. So the other piece of the puzzle will be the kind of supports for counseling and uh, social emotional learning that are necessary for students. Well, we know that low-income students, students with disabilities and many Black, uh, Latino and Native American students experienced significant challenges with remote learning. Uh, these communities were also hit hardest by COVID-19 uh, itself. And so I guess, how can public schools better consider and address the needs of marginalized student populations? Well, we need to undo the inequalities that we already have in the system as we're recovering from the pandemic. So we have a very wide income gap in the country, the widest gap between uh, the most wealthy and the lowest income since we've had uh, that we've had since 1929 before the crash uh, that occurred. 
the top 1% of people control 50% of the wealth, uh, more wealth than the bottom 50% of people. So we've got to be able to um, move uh, resources into the places where the needs are the greatest. Uh, on top of that, we often have unequal school spending. So we spend more money, public money, on the education of affluent children in many states, more than 30 states, than we do on the poor. Uh, so among the things we need to do is begin to rectify that, and that is beginning to happen. Uh, New York State, which has had a lawsuit for 30 years, going on to try to correct the big inequalities in funding, just announced that they'll begin to fund the more equitable um, school formula uh, over the coming years. Uh, California has already made some strides in that direction, but it's doubling down on getting more resources to the students who need them most. And what do we do with those resources? We need to be sure that we are uh, reducing class sizes so that it can be personalized, so that children can be uh, directly supported uh, by their teachers. We need to be sure that we're putting in place, as I said, the kind of mental health and social service supports. Uh, the federal money and much state money, as in California, uh, where I'm on the State Board of Education, so I'm watching that closely, uh, is going to support community schools, which provide wraparound services, uh, social services, mental health, health care, so that all kids are able to be in school ready to learn. Uh, and so we have a big agenda uh, for equity in the country. Many, many states are aware of this and pursuing it. The new federal money, 120 plus billion dollars to K-12 education, uh, can be used to rectify a lot of these inequalities. And that's the uh, agenda we need to have front of us. Lots of changes uh, coming up. And, and one of those is that in-person learning uh, is going to resume in many school districts uh, and states where it already has not. Uh, but technology is going to remain an important uh, piece for the future of education. But we know there's a digital divide uh, between affluent communities, predominantly white communities, and, and those uh, that are more populated with people of color and those from low-income uh, backgrounds. How do we bridge that digital divide? Well, that is one of the things that was, you know, the earliest awareness in the pandemic. And many states are working very diligently. I think in California, we've closed the digital divide probably by more than two thirds uh, by, uh, you know, reaching out to uh, get digital uh, devices in the hands of children. I, a year ago, I was going um, with the governor, the first partner, the state superintendent, kind of door to door to corporations and foundations and saying, please put money in the kitty so we could get computers for all our kids. Uh, we now have public policy. We now have funding streams. Um, districts have really reached out. They've gotten hotspots for kids and families. They've gotten computers, but we have to continue it. We don't want to go back to the old normal where we think, oh, we're back in school in person. Those kids don't need computers at home. They do, they need them, their families need them, not only to be able to do homework and get on the web and do research uh, for their academic studies, but also uh, as families to be able to get benefits and get employment and you know all of the things that we need to do in the world today require that digitization. Um, and so again, the American Rescue Plan Act, has a major commitment to closing the digital divide. And then states, many of them are adding on, uh, not only to be sure everyone has devices 
and hotspots, but to close the uh, sort of last mile infrastructure in rural areas and in urban areas where the bandwidth is not adequate to support all the people. Um, we are making progress on it. We need to just hold that as a commitment that we will close the digital divide in this coming uh, year or two and, and maintain a system that is equitable. It needs to be like electricity or water. Every household has to have access. So continuing that idea, I mean, you talked a bit about the challenges uh, that remote learning pose for some students, but what specific role do you see technology and digital tools playing in the future of education? Yeah, I mean, this is really an opportunity. We have had to innovate. You know, we closed the school uh, doors physically and people were like, oh my gosh, you know, but all the teachers in this country have had the opportunity to learn to begin to use technology. Some of them have done incredibly innovative things uh, using uh, interactive uh, digital tools for kids around content, uh, connecting uh, the collaborations that kids may engage in to learn, not only within their classroom or their school, but even with children across the world who are studying similar things. Uh, we've seen a tremendous amount of productive innovation. We have research that shows the ways that we can use technology uh, to uh, enhance learning and to ensure that it is uh, even more effective than just in the classroom. So that's part of the agenda is to use technology when kids are back uh, to school in person, uh, allow more flexibility in the ways in which we structure the learning process so that we're taking advantage both of in-person instruction and the relationships that matter so much and the uses of technology to connect to people around the world, to information around the world. Remember that knowledge is now exploding and kids are working with knowledge that is being invented every year. We have new knowledge created each year uh, than you know, in the years previous. So we're needing for all of our students to understand how to access information, put it together, make judgments, um, create products and solutions to problems, uh, be able to vet those. Uh, and technology is key to that and teaching them how to be in that mode of learning, uh, as well as in the in-person modes of learning that are also important is going to be essential for them to survive in the economy and the society that they are entering. You know, another topic that uh, has been viewed as essential for the well-being of students has been mental health uh, during yes. this pandemic. And I would love to hear your thoughts on the role of schools and, you know, not just addressing the academic gaps, but also the unique mental toll uh, that the pandemic has had on students. Yeah, we need to realize that the experience of the pandemic was a dramatically unequal experience. Some people who are affluent would stay home with their multiple computers in their houses with high bandwidth and maybe complain about whether they had to share the bandwidth a little bit with you know others in their household or something. Other people really experienced a very different um, year. Uh, households that were um, you know, food insecure, housing insecure. A lot of people, you know, were struggling with evictions. Of course, illness was much greater in uh, communities of color and in low income communities. Um, and so many kids experienced uh, the illness or death of members of their family. 
they experienced food insecurity and housing insecurity. They experienced the trauma of not knowing what was going to happen the next day. They experienced the trauma of isolation uh, and not being easily able to be connected uh, either in person or, or um, by digital means with their classmates. A lot of kids were trying to do their homework on a phone or deal with bandwidth that would cut off all the time. All of those things are stressful. Children will come back to school carrying those stressors with them, carrying that set of traumatic experiences. It's really important that when we start school this year that uh, educators have the time and the space to create uh, an, a trusting environment, a caring environment, that counselors are at hand as well, that there's the opportunity for kids to be able to share what they have experienced, to get supports, to process the experience, to feel the love that is needed for them to be able to feel that they can reattach to school, that they can have caring adults who will help them through what they've experienced. One of my fears is that when kids have experienced trauma, they often uh, will be very um, hyper vigilant and, and emotionally uh, activated and the behaviors that they may bring with them uh, may be misunderstood as misbehavior. Uh, and punished rather than, you know, uh, met with support and emotional opportunity to process and um, reconnect. And so we also need what we think of as restorative uh, approaches to re-entering school, where children, where the schools are trauma-informed, where they are healing-oriented, uh, where kids are met uh, with that kind of care and concern, um, and where the resources are at hand to help them uh, in this next stage. I do think that what's great about the new moment is that educators across the country really are prioritizing social and emotional well-being, uh, doing that in a lot of different ways, bringing programs and support systems and opportunities for this kind of healing-oriented practice uh, into schools. And that's a good thing. It also turns out that academic performance increases when you attend to children and their feelings and their needs. So we will see academic benefits, but we will most importantly see the responses that children need to be whole people and to be attached to school and to adults and to their uh, peers and colleagues. I wanna uh, pivot to an audience question uh, for a second. Um, we know that, uh, you know, there are barriers preventing uh, diversification of the teaching profession, and it would be great to hear your thoughts on what some of them are and how can those be reduced. Uh, that's a question from Adrian Dorrington in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Adrian. And let me just preface my response by saying we know that uh, diversity in the teaching profession is critically important. Not only do we have evidence that teachers of color uh, are uh, effective, more effective with students of color. And this is particularly true for black teachers and black students. Uh, you see academic and attainment gains uh, when black students have the opportunity to have uh, black teachers. Uh, but also uh, we know that uh, in order to provide a sort of culturally responsive setting, you need a diverse group of educators in a school so that they can help one another and the students both see role models and understand the cultural experiences that different children bring 
so this is a very important part of having a successful school system. And the key thing for diversifying the teaching profession is not only the outreach to teachers uh, and getting them into the profession, uh, which means we need to pay for their education. Um, you can, people of color who are candidates in teaching carry a lot more debt load in college um, and need to be able to afford to enter the profession. Uh, and need to be able to get those, the financial supports to get through college. So we know that service scholarships, uh, things that are teacher residency programs that underwrite um, your entry to the profession are very effective at recruiting teachers of color, getting them in with the training that will allow them to stay because people who are well-trained stay at twice the rate of people who've come into the profession without full training. Then we need mentoring for them so that they get the support at the beginning that they need. Uh, and then we need to be sure that the environments that they're in are um, caring, responsive environments in which they're experiencing a positive uh, co colleague group and support from administrators. We bring more teachers of color in than we retain. And so we have to focus as much on the experiences of those new teachers uh, once they're in as we do getting them into the classroom. Since we're talking about uh, diversity, I wanted to bring up a topic that's been uh, on the minds and mouths of many people in the political space, which is where I normally dwell, and that's critical race theory. And you know, there's been so much debate about whether critical race theory should be taught in schools or not. Uh, why do you think the country's in such a panic about this? And, and what are your thoughts on critical race theory? Should it be taught or not? Well, most people misunderstand what it is. Uh, critical race theory is a legal theory. It's right. something that was developed by legal scholars to look at laws and regulations. And the idea is that you look at laws and regulations with an eye towards whether they are um, promoting uh, systemic uh, discrimination in society. We have a lot of laws, you know, not only during the era of slavery, but you know, in the many, many decades since around segregation, around uh, redlining, around the way in which people are assigned to school districts and funding is, a, is um, allocated to those schools and so on. And we can't change those things unless we look at them. So critical race theory says, look at those things so that you can change them. Many people misunderstand what that is, what the term means. Um, but in fact, it's not something that people typically teach in school, except in uh, the context of history and social studies classes, where you might look at um, law and policy uh, as they have unfolded over many years. Um, I think there's a very different uh, set of questions around how do we make every student from every background uh, well-respected, well-connected, uh, understood, not stigmatized in school. Um, and that really has to do with being fair and um, uh, supportive to all children uh, and creating a multicultural environment. That really has nothing to do with critical race theory as a, as a form of legal scholarship. As we look towards the fall semester, uh, the CDC says that fully vaccinated teachers and students do not need to wear masks indoors. And you know, the Delta variant is rapidly spreading here in the US, especially in the South. And I just wanted to know if you thought that was the right call to make. 
Well, I, as I mentioned, I'm president of the state board in California, and we are requiring masking for everyone at the start of school because the Delta variant is here, because we don't want to discriminate between uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated students. We want to encourage everyone to get vaccinated, but um, you know, most of our students cannot be vaccinated. There isn't a vaccine for children. Um, and not only do we have the Delta variant, but we have Epsilon and a number of other ones all the way up to Lambda. Uh, case rates in the United States are doubling uh, over the last two weeks. Case rates have doubled. Missouri ran out of ventilators um, a week or so ago, um, and they're you know already experiencing some of the trauma that we had before. I think we need to be safe. And as soon as we can, we as soon as we have people vaccinated, as soon as we have uh, you know responses to the uh, variants, then of course we you know everyone wants to take their mask off. But until then, we should do the safest things we can in schools for kids. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time for this segment. Uh, Linda Darling-Hammond, thank you so much for coming to talk with us. It was a fascinating discussion, and uh, we hope you come back soon. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Please stay with us. I will be right back with uh, Darion Pollard in a few minutes. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Jean Meserve. The pandemic hasn't just disrupted K-12 education. Higher ed has been impacted too, particularly historically Black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. Why? Because coronavirus disproportionately impacted the African-American community and because these institutions have been historically underfunded. Here to discuss is Sherry Slate. Sherry is the Chief Inclusion and Collaboration Officer at Cisco. She is also the Vice President of Inclusive Future and Strategy. Uh, Sherry, great to have you with us. I know Cisco is contributing $150 million to the Student Freedom Initiative for Technology and Tuition Assistance. Why did Cisco decide that this was the place it wanted to invest? Jean, it's so good to see you. You see, last year absolutely was a reckoning. It was a reckoning for companies like Cisco that have long been on this journey to solve for fairness, equity, and inclusion. Um, but what I can tell you is that it shined a light on the size of the gap between our aspiration and our effort. What we know today is that we have to take bold, intentional, and deliberate action, and we have to do it in new and different ways. What that means is we have to move beyond the traditional, the traditional of giving money and expecting someone else to do good with it and or taking an action one time. We also know that we have to coalesce with partners, partners who wanna create a recurring impact that will last for generations to come. This is what's required in this landscape to meet this moment and every moment that comes after it. So tell me about the technology investment. What will you do in that regard? So Jean, our purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. It was the foundation for how we built our social justice beliefs and our actions. And they actually serve us in how we are going to create, create what we would call a recurring impact for generations to come. Our action for HBCUs is that we are actually going to do our part to preserve the legacy of HBCUs for generations to come. Many might ask why, and the reason is that education 
it's the foundation for generational change. And HBCUs in particular are creating the lion's share of black talent in America. And they are absolutely vital for creating an extraordinary pipeline of talent for the world. So we are excited to do our part, to do our part to help preserve the legacy of HBCUs, to ensure that they have the tools and the resources to be relevant in the modern age. More importantly, we are giving $100 million in software, services, and hardware to ensure they have the infrastructure the infrastructure to compete today and in the future. The beautiful thing is that we're not doing it alone. We are actually doing it with partners, two extraordinary partners, Gene, SFI, which is helping us to identify the schools and ABC Technologies. They are actually one of our triple gold partners and they are helping us to do the assessments and install the equipment. So another $50 million is going towards tuition assistance. I understand it's going to pay ultimately for the education of 4,500 students. Why did you feel that was the place and that was the way to spend that money? It's a great question. When we saw what Student Freedom Initiative was doing to remove the barriers to education for Black students, we were inspired. We were inspired to join them and here's why. SFI is actually taking an innovative approach. They are taking something that's been successful, endowments, and applying it in a new and different way, in a way that is actually going to solve for a challenge that has been longstanding. What we saw is the opportunity to partner with them and to create what we would call recurring impact. You see, this is about how do we create impact beyond one school, one class, but for the entire HBCU system. At Cisco, we believe that inspiration is the new currency and it's gonna create pathways to prosperity for people and communities around the world. So Sherry, um, inspiration and corporation aren't always two words that you hear in the same sentence. Um, what would you say to individuals who might be skeptical about corporations' true commitment to doing good? So I have to say, I think it starts with uh, leading by example. Our CEO, Chuck Robbins, last year at Davos said, a 21st century company has to truly care about its stakeholders, not just the majority, but all of them. What he was talking about is that we have to think beyond the business approach when we think about impact. We have to put communities at the center. And when we do that, that gives us the ability to see new opportunities for solving some of the biggest challenges that they face. If we just take the Student Freedom Initiative and our seed investment of $50 million, this is just the beginning. The reality of, of being able to support students in perpetuity actually will not be seen unless we raise $450 million. Now, the beautiful thing, Jean, is that that means there's room at this table. There is room at this table for other individuals and companies to join us. The pathway for us to actually serve people and communities for generations to come means that we have to coalesce, inspire each other, and take action together. This HBCU action is only one of many that Cisco has. I encourage you, if you're listening, to go and read our beliefs and our actions, which are on cisco.com. But in terms of what we are looking to do together, 
inspiration is the new currency. We must inspire each other to either create new actions or join each other in delivering the actions that we aspire to achieve. Our way to do this is to do it together. And Cisco is all in. Sherry Slate, Chief Inclusion and Collaboration Officer and also Vice President of Inclusive Future and Strategy at Cisco. Thanks so much for joining us today. And now back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter here at the Washington Post. And my next guest is Darion Pollard. She's the president of Montgomery College here in Maryland and the incoming president of Nevada State College. Dr. Pollard, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Good to see you again. Delighted to be here and so happy to see you. There's been a lot of change since we uh, had you on here last, and we want to start uh, talking about the pandemic and specifically uh, the digital divide. Uh, so we know many colleges saw drops in enrollment during the pandemic. What was your experience like leading a community college during the pandemic and, you know, one that has one of the most diverse student populations in the country? Eugene, I think for most college leaders at this time, leading during the pandemic provided us, I think, with an opportunity to really stretch and think about things very differently, both in terms of the delivery of our mission, but also thinking about all of those factors that truly impact student success. So for me, I found myself very much committed to amplifying conversations around narratives that spoke to intersections. So as you described earlier, and even the clip uh, that I spoke to a few months ago, when we think about the complexity of the student experience in higher education, whether that be at a two-year institution or a four-year institution, we oftentimes put students in these little boxes and we say, this is what a student looks like, this is their lived experience, and oftentimes that's based on the narrative of higher education many years ago, uh, those of us who were successful in navigating that system. What we don't recognize and appreciate the fact is that many of our students' lives, particularly as it relates to this pandemic, it only amplified the intersections, the disparities that existed. So for instance, when we had conversations about college students, we should be also talking about parenting college students. When we had conversations about the fact that the digital divide was impacting students and their ability <clears throat> to log into classes, we also recognize this probably impacted their ability to work. It impacted their ability to move effortlessly within the social network of our communities. So what we are really experiencing right now and in, in, in all the spaces that I step into, talking with college leaders, talking with faculty and staff, is how do we begin to really look at this narrative that suggests that college students are 18 years old, uh, they're being mm. largely supported by their parents, they're going to go stay in residential uh, institutions that uh, have parents will be sending them care packages every weekend, uh, they're going to go out and party on the weekends, they're going to go out and join fraternities and sororities and not necessarily be actively engaged with our communities. That is not the dominant narrative of higher education. In fact, it's the minority of higher education. Mm. So how do we make sure that we amplify those stories uh, of, of equality that really speak to who our students are today, uh, that captures the fact as uh, your previous speaker, uh, Professor uh, Linda Darling, who I just, uh, just uh, admire so tremendously, talked about this idea of how our lives as students are so impacted by issues of trauma, how they're impacted by issues of poverty, how they're impacted by issues of inequality that really are things that we have to address in higher education in the broader conversations right now. Mm -hmm. 
I so appreciated your point about how needing to rethink what a college student looks like. Uh, I'm a millennial and we often talk about how people have this idea about millennials all being 20, when the fact is the oldest group of millennials are now 40. And so that certainly has to rethink uh, how we talk about them when it comes to policy and education. Uh, we talk a lot about the challenges uh, that online learning uh, have presented. Can you talk a bit about some of you know, the pros that this experience uh, has have presented and opportunities for your students? I really appreciate that observation. And as a Gen Xer, uh, there are certain stereotypes that go through right. all of our uh, generations. But what I think is interesting sure. about this is kind of related to this question. We we describe the uh, online learning or the hybrid learning experience as one that potentially uh, had a lot of learning loss for students. The reality is that I think it had a lot of also benefits for our students. Many of our students we found uh, were able to access uh, they're learning in non-traditional times. So if we think about a traditional classroom experience, either being eight to noon, or then again, being in the evening, a six to nine, something like that, what we saw is the students were actually able to access not only classroom materials and their learning uh, overnight after they had taken uh, putting their children to bed, help them with their homework or so forth. We also saw them accessing support services in non-traditional times and having greater ability to navigate our systems that way. That for me is one of the big aha moments that we had is that, again, if we acknowledge the fact, we had to hold two things in our head at the same time, and I say this all the time, that college students are both learners and consumers. And yet we design their learning experience around a consumer mentality that oftentimes is a very traditional eight to five type of traditional workday. That is not what our students are doing. If they're working eight to five, it's unreasonable and unfair for us to expect them then to be able to access our services and programs during those timeframes. So for us, we saw with online uh, work and learning that took place during the pandemic, we saw our students accessing support services much more robustly engaged with uh, counseling, with our tutoring services, much more engagement around student life activities. Uh, I, I observe students having quote unquote dance parties. Uh, they wouldn't have traditionally been able to access in a work day or traditional college day, but they could come online and do it on the weekends together, uh, doing painting, painting exercises. So the reality about this is that the comprehensive student experience, I believe was broadened and amplified during mm -hmm. this time during online and it helped make sure that some students aren't left behind. But conversely, and I think an important point for us to recognize is that there, while there are many students who benefited and excelled during this time, there are also many students for whom this type of learning environment did not work for them. So they need mm -hmm. a hybrid model or they need to be back on campus. And as a result of that, uh, most college universities I know of are going to be doing that. They're going to be delivering almost in three modalities, uh, both mm. in an uh, first in an online environment, secondly in a hybrid where you have online and a face-to-face, -face, and then certainly in many face-to-face -face services, which I think are going to be essential for the future of higher education. Uh, were there any adaptations made out of necessity during the pandemic that worked, you know, really well that you think should remain uh, post-COVID? Mm, I, I, you know, I believe every uh, challenge is an opportunity for growth. I can, in my own personal life, I just had this conversation with someone earlier. Every time that I've had a, a challenge or a problem, it has allowed me to grow. And as a result of that, I think higher education right now is growing as a result of this moment. Uh, in addition to looking at how we can deliver services and instruction 
in an online environment using all of the different modalities and platforms that are available, we also had a clarion call for us around the equity of this work. I think that was something that really allowed us to think deeply about the delivery of our mission, whether that be at a two-year institution or a four-year institution. I'd also offer to you that the work around professional development became essential. We're a learning organization, so we typically have had robust professional development programs. What became very important, I think, is that every faculty member who is a gifted instructor uh, teaching in traditional methodology in a face-to-face classroom may not have the experience or training to do that in an online environment. So I know at my own college, we did deep and rich investments in professional development, which I believe we will continue. So how do we begin to deliver instruction uh, to faculty and to staff, I think is going to be important. Thinking about the technology that we need to have in our workspaces. You know, one of the hidden conversations that I think we need to really magnify in this moment has been conversations about the impact of the pandemic on our faculty and staff. Many of us Mm -hmm. are very comfortable uh, talking about the impact of the pandemic on our students. And we talk about poverty. We talk about basic needs and security. We talk about trauma. We talk about all of those things that we know were a part of the student experience. Uh, I would offer to you and say that we should pause and have that same type of conversation about the impact of this pandemic on our faculty and staff. While they were delivering the programs and instruction services that we had, they were also experiencing the same trauma, the same loss, the same environments. And we make assumptions about their ability to navigate that. Uh, You talked earlier about mental health. Mental health is something that we have to talk about both in terms of students, but also the employees at the institution. So I'm hopeful that we have disrupted as an organization, this kind of every day, every semester type of mentality that we're really looking at these moments of intersection, these moments of things that said to us, aha, let's think about how we can move into this in a post-pandemic reality. Uh, th- those comments in terms of the things we think about affecting students, but not quite uh, faculty and staff, made me think about how often when I think about the digital divide, I don't factor in faculty and and staff when the reality is there's probably a digital divide there with some. Yeah, we were passing out thousands of devices to students, you know, whether it be laptops, hotspots, a lot of our students who were working with our disabled student services programs, we were providing specialized technology to them. Uh, But here, and and, and here's the thing that's really interesting about this. We make assumptions about the employees of our organizations. Uh, We all think of them as having robust technology at home, access to a broadband, access to uh, technologies that will allow them to uh, talk to students in multiple platforms, that they have a camera, they have a microphone, they have uh, the robust needs of that. The reality about that is that many of them don't. And if we wanted to be able to be a comprehensive, full-serving institution at this time, we recognize that we needed to provide those same things to our students. We spend, I mean, excuse me, to our employees. We do a lot of work as well within our work environment talking about ergonomics and we talk about workspaces. Uh, we make assumptions again about what employees have at home to do that. Uh, the reality that so many of our faculty and staff in their interactions with students were referring them to community services and looking at the safety net and helping those students understand how to navigate that. Guess what? 
our faculty and staff needed to do that as well. They had loss. Uh, they had family where they may have still been working and receiving a salary from Montgomery College or Nevada State College. The reality is that their parents or their spouse or their children may not have been receiving that. So they are helping to support those environments. So again, this idea of intersections, I think mm -hmm. is going to be important. We have to uh, disabuse ourselves of the notions that people fit into these nice little packages. And in these packages, we've identified a set of characteristics that respond to who they are and what they do. The reality is that's not the case. And as an institution of higher education, institution that should be a caring employer as well as a caring provider of higher education, we have to look at how we do both of those things uh, in very deliberate ways, responding to the needs of our students as well as our employees. And there's a third layer for many of us, it's also the needs of our community because we were a space when community members came to us to use facilities, to use technology, that that didn't exist during the pandemic. So now we've got to think about how we help support those community groups that oftentimes support our students, but also add to the value and richness of our communities. So thinking about that, uh, you know, issues related to the digital divide, how, how do we close that, especially related to, you know, racial and economic disparities uh, when it comes to equity and, and access to education? How do we fix that? Yeah, I, if I could answer that question, Eugene, I could probably give myself a Pulitzer or something. But what I could do is, is offer to you a couple of perspectives about this. And what I, when I'm talking to my colleagues and the things that we're thinking about in this fall semester as we step back, uh, we're thinking about how the safety net has been strained right now. We saw this. So as a result of that, are there ways that technology can help that? Uh, we saw the rise, uh, whether it be in the higher ed space or others, of uh, virtual counseling services, virtual mental health. That, I think, is something that we would not have ever thought about. In fact, we had many folks within our organizations who rejected the premise that these things could be done virtually. I had to sit across from you and, and my office to do that. The reality is that's not the case now. I can advise, I can counsel, I can help connect you in ways. So that's very important. I have to acknowledge then the environment in which we're working in as well. You know, oftentimes we focus on the pandemic of COVID-19 that was taking place in our country for the last 18 months or so. But we also have to recognize we had the, a similar pandemic uh, right parallel with it, the pandemic around race in this country and, and talking about what's happening in communities and how families and communities are grappling with racial reconciliation that has to happen right now. You cannot see uh, the continued abuse, regardless of what community you live in, of folks of color and others as well, without figuring out how you grapple with that. And oftentimes, higher education as these anchor institutions were the place where we brought the, we provided the public square uh, for folks to come in and debate these types of issues and to talk about them and theorize about them and just be heard about their experience. So given that, how do we do that also using technology? And we saw that in my own college where we were very deliberate in using a Zoom platform or other platforms to bring hundreds of people together to talk about that, to educate, to use breakout groups and all of those different things to do that because you cannot begin to address the problems if you don't talk about them, if you don't talk about the lived experiences of the folks who are living within them. And I think the other thing that we have, I think can be very important for us is to acknowledge that yes, while the pandemic forced us to rapidly accelerate our work around professional development and other technology enhancements and in the learning space, we recognize that there are 
uh, students who did not thrive in this. There was learning stagna stagnation or learning loss. How do we begin to, as a sector, reckon with that and really sit down and think about what happens in our classrooms, what happens in our spaces where students come to for support, and be very uh, direct about how we're going to name that. At my own college, Montgomery has been very deliberate with our board of talking about anti-racist policies and practices. How do we as an organization think deeply about the work of making sure that every student has not only the ability, but the right to thrive within our organization? If we do that, let's have a very honest conversation. That means we have to have substantive changes in the way students come into our organizations, how they navigate and wayfind. You know, my chief academic officer says the number one equity conversation, at least the first equity conversation that an organization has to have is around is placement testing. Because if we know certain things happen as a result of testing, we need to be very deliberate about how we dismantle that as an organization. So Eugene, I think that there are both very pragmatic things organizations are gonna be thinking about in terms of how they deliver their mission. But I think also this moment is going to around issues of equity, the digital divide, all of those factors are also gonna be mission in types of conversations we have to have. And organizations that are boundary spanning, that move beyond just this very uh, uh, elementary understanding of the work that they do are going to be the organizations that thrive and have the most successful, I believe, impact on the students and communities that we serve. Uh, well, another popular conversation related to equity, specifically racial equity, as you know, is the cost of higher education. Uh, we know that black students in the U.S. hold substantially more debt uh, than their white counterparts by age 25. And some lawmakers, as a result, want to cancel all or most student debt. Quite a few lawmakers do not. Uh, do you think doing that, canceling student debt, at least some of it, would promote more racial and economic equity? Yeah, I, I, and this is why I, I loved your question earlier um, when you were talking with uh, Professor Darling, is to really understand, and it, it, it's understand the historic and systematic mm -hmm. nature of how racism and white supremacy has affected this country. And if we go back and look at historical understandings about that, then we are better able to step into this conversation. And what we know is that uh, the income and the uh, generational wealth that has been lost in black and brown communities as a result of sy systemic racism is one indeed that we must pay attention to. So if we want to have conversations about students, why do students take out in large parts, significant amounts of student loan. It is because they do not have family, come from families that have the ability to make investments in their education from savings. Uh, these are oftentimes students as well who are trying to work and go to school at the same time. And yes, there are gonna be some who will say, yes, this student took out thousands of dollars of debt and they did not use that for schooling, they used it for other things. I think those are outliers and misnomers that are, you know, uh, red herrings to distract us from the conversation that really needs to be had. We know that many students take out high numbers of student debt because they want their families to have the port, their future, to have their version of the American dream. And the reality about this is that student debt is, it is crippling a generation. You talked about millennials, you talk about Gen Xers. I have friends of mine who know they will be paying student debt until the day they retire because they, mm -hmm. but it changed their life. It changed their family's life, but the reality about this is that it also impacts every other part of their life, their ability to 
own home, their ability to have certain jobs, their ability to navigate a future for themselves and also their own children. So for me, the conversation is, is that if you want to have a conversation about abating or somehow reducing loan uh, and loan forgiveness, student loans for students who carry significant amounts of debt, the conversation cannot be absent from how do we get into this situation in the first place? And that to me is the greater part of the conversation that needs to occur. Personally, I believe that if we can create upward mobility for students and their families by helping them have their access to uh, the economic pipelines that move this country forward, I think we're all better served. And that's the part we keep thinking about education as an individual right and an individual mm -hmm. benefit. Here's the dirty secret, Eugene. It's not even a dirty secret. It's the truth is that it benefits all of us if we choose society to live in an bed. educated yeah. society. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so, so much to think about. And, and I think we here at Post Live uh, would love to have you back to expand upon these uh, conversations and to keep uh, our listeners informed on the topics that uh, matter most to you uh, as you move forward to the other side of the country. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pollard, for coming out. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Indeed, indeed. Unfortunately, we are out of time for this segment, but we want you to come back. Uh, join Washington Post Live at 2.30 p.m. today. My colleague Jackie Alimany will interview Senator Michael Bennett. I'm Eugene Scott. As always, thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.